I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michael Van Royen, Director of the Division of International Health and Humanitarian Programs in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and Director of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. We're discussing risks to global health workers and approaches to mitigating them. Dr. Van Ruyen, in a perspective article you co-authored with Les Roberts, you focus on one serious concern regarding international work in public health, which is its abuse by governments, including the U.S. government, for political and military purposes, which, as you say, damages people's trust in health care and threatens future public health interventions. Can you describe the events in Pakistan that recently highlighted this issue? Hi, yes, um, and thank you for having me. Um, the event that we discussed in the article, and I think that has uh, been of national and international concern, is that uh, in 2011, the CIA had hired and recruited a Pakistani physician who did kind of door-to-door hepatitis B immunizations with the attempt of actually getting blood samples and DNA samples um, with the attempt of localizing Osama bin Laden's um, family or essentially getting samples to verify his family's location. Um, during that time, he was actually not let in the bin Laden household uh, or compound at that time. But when the story broke and after the story broke, it heightened already kind of tense and significant suspicions that the U.S. and Western governments were using uh, immunization campaigns for purposes of undermining the government or uh, undermining Islam. And so shortly thereafter, Save the Children, a larger organization that does immunization campaigns, was kicked out of Pakistan, and polio vaccination workers were killed. So there were eight vaccination um, and public health workers that were killed because they were administering vaccines. This created an international um, sort of attention to this issue that has been a longstanding suspicion for many countries. So the remaining countries that are trying to eradicate polio, there are only three, and two of those in Nigeria and in Pakistan have deep suspicions of um, U.S. governmental intervention. You mentioned Nigeria. In fact, more recently, nine polio vaccination workers were killed in northern Nigeria, allegedly because there were rumors that the vaccine led to sterilization and the healthcare workers were thought to be spies. So these kinds of events, as you say, have roots in political and religious conflicts. What are some approaches to addressing the population's concerns about these problems and addressing the tragedies? Another tragic example where um, you know vaccination workers were targeted just because they were administering vaccines, and the suspicion that um, either polio vaccinations or any vaccination campaign are spreading HIV or sterilizing um, women is um, you know these conspiracy theories unfortunately are really um, propagated by actual real events like the CIA intervention in the fake uh, vaccination campaign. Um, so one of the things there are many things that need to be done in order to develop the trust that is necessary to have widespread and complete coverage for all immunizations as well as polio. You know there's been millions and millions and millions of dollars and years of work that have led to the near eradication of polio and um, other vaccine preventable diseases. Diseases, uh, depend on the community's trust of public health workers. And if that trust is eroded, that they will no longer have access. This speaks to the larger issue of uh, medical care and humanitarian assistance in areas of conflict or of um, you know, significant uh, instability, because the protection of any aid worker or any, uh, any person that does immunization campaigns or public health worker, their protection really depends on the trust of the community. So one of the major things that we need to do is rebuild 
um, trust that the public health community and the global public health community is working on behalf of the community and the nation um, and the world to eradicate uh, vaccine-preventable diseases. How common are the kinds of events that happened in Pakistan and Nigeria, and what can we do to make sure they don't happen again? I would say overall they're extremely uncommon. I mean, you know, the campaign to eradicate polio and the ability to mobilize vaccines to prevent preventable illnesses such as, you know, measles and mumps, etc., um, they're huge campaigns. They reach nearly every nation in the world. And so these events are very rare and um, and very troubling. But they occur in places that already have some deep seated suspicion of um, U.S. and Western intervention. So I think in order to, to gain the, the complete coverage that we're trying to get and to, to really prevent these illnesses uh, from occurring, we need to have you know, a concentrated effort in building trust on the governmental and the community level. So this requires engagement with governments, but also with um, kind of civil structures and even militias so that they understand that these campaigns are are neutral and that they are uh, public health and they are not related to any political agenda, which now, unfortunately, is a little bit challenging after the uh, CIA event. In another perspective article, Copeland focuses on the risks involved in providing health care in areas of armed conflict, where hospitals and healthcare personnel may be targeted either directly or because they're caught between warring factions. What do you think healthcare workers and global health programs can do to mitigate those risks? That is a huge and growing issue. Um, you know, certainly in my tenure as a humanitarian aid worker for the last 20 years, I've seen, um, even in the last 10 or 15 years, the erosion of neutrality and the increasing difficulty in accessing populations in need. As an international aid worker, it is no longer the case that you can, you know, wear a T-shirt with a Red Cross on it or have a vehicle that is clearly marked as a medical vehicle and be protected. On the contrary, these health workers' vehicles and facilities are often targeted, and that was the point and the purpose of Robin Copeland's study with the International Committee of the Red Cross called Healthcare in Danger. Um, and they studied many nations and many uh, occurrences where healthcare workers have been targeted. Now, it happens for a variety of reasons, right? It happens because um, in the case of Bahrain, for example, the government felt like the physicians were undermining the government, where the physicians were really drawing attention to the atrocities that were committed by the government. Um, it happens in many places where there's foreign health workers, and they're attacked because of you know, suspicions of being supported by, say, the U.S. government and being agents of the government. So I think there are many reasons for these attacks. They're not just one particular reason. It's not just about um, Islam versus the West. It's not just about um, financial issues or um, theft. It's uh, many reasons. And I think that we have to develop a concerted campaign to try to regain, to some degree, medical neutrality. You mentioned Bahrain, where the government arrested healthcare workers who were caring for the injured in protests and tried them in military courts. Is this a widespread risk for healthcare workers? I would say for international healthcare workers, again, you know, healthcare workers in general work and enjoy a tremendous amount of community trust and freedom around the world. Um, it is one of the areas of participation, you know, the health industry that um, can create some sense of neutrality so that physicians from various ethnic groups and uh, religious groups can work side by side. So in general, uh, again, we've enjoyed a tremendous sense of camaraderie in medicine. Um, however, there's been some occurrences like that in Bahrain where uh, physicians were seen as undermining the government 
movement because they were drawing witness to the events that were happening. And, you know, physicians who are really on the front line of political crises like this have the occasion to not only care for the population, but also, you know, bear witness to the events that are happening. And unfortunately, that happened in Bahrain, where those uh, physicians and nurses were uh, accused of um, undermining the government. They were even accused of stockpiling weapons. Most of the charges have been dropped or reduced, but it shows a, a disturbing trend toward targeting physicians, particularly for speaking out. Are there viable solutions that would protect healthcare workers and healthcare institutions in volatile areas? Um, I think there are, and they come from many levels. So the diplomatic solution would be the reaffirmation by all nations and all national actors that the protection of international and national healthcare structures like hospitals, like clinics, like doctors and nurses or ambulances um, needs to be respected. And that work needs to be reaffirmed. And so I think the, the ICRC and many organizations are calling for kind of a reaffirmation of the neutrality or the, the recognition of neutrality of healthcare workers. But I think it has to go further than that. I mean, it has to, it goes all the way from negotiated access with non-state actors, which, you know, in the case of the Taliban and others, they have to also be reassured that medical facilities and medical personnel and medical vehicles are used only for medical purposes, um, which is, uh, you know, uh, again, it's a difficult uh, road ahead. And finally, you know, protecting healthcare personnel, both national personnel and internationals that enter the field, is a very local responsibility as well. We have to make sure that healthcare workers have the appropriate protection on the ground, and that is, you know, a secure and safe environment in which to work and the trust of the community. And that has to be, you know, on a case by case basis. To shift focus a bit, Medical students and trainees are increasingly seeking experiences in global health work, at least for short stints. Do the risks, both health risks and security risks, make people think twice about engaging in that sort of thing? Well, I think the popularity of global international rotations has grown exponentially. And so, you know, every medical school in the U.S. and in the U.K. probably, and most residencies really entertain and promote the ability for their students and residents to train and practice overseas and to really develop a global scope to their practice, which is fantastic. And there's many, many wonderful reasons for it. I think um, it has given some schools and university pause that healthcare workers can be endangered by their actions. I would say, however, the major risks are not politically motivated, and unless you're entering a conflict area, in which case I would say probably most trainees should not enter anyway. Um, so unless you're entering a conflict area, those issues are not the greatest threat. The, the biggest threats are really the more kind of mundane security issues where people can get, you know, in accidents, they can get um, robbed or they can get targeted because they're a rich Western physician, at least relatively so. So, you know, I think the risks are probably not so much related to um, issues like targeting healthcare workers in crisis. And the real risks are the more kind of common travel-related or personal security-related issues. So how should we prepare physicians and physicians in training for this kind of work? You know, it is always useful whether you're entering a politically sensitive area or you are working in, you know, an area that is well known but of a different culture and uh, kind of a different um, 
environment, that you have situational awareness. So we need to teach our medical students and our residents how to be responsible travelers. You know, how do they maintain uh, some degree of personal security, how they maintain good travel habits, and how they work with the community to develop the respect and the access to the community that allows them safety and security. So for the most part, as we prepare our medical students and residents, it's really teaching them, you know, how to be savvy travelers to understand the culture, understand the traditions, understand the safety and security issues, and to be just responsible. Thank you, Dr. Van Royen.